I'm Sean Delaney, and you're listening to What Got You There. What Got You There is a must-follow for entrepreneurs, creatives, high achievers, and change makers. Each week, I sit down with some of the world's most influential people and focus on the journey behind their success. We uncover the strategy, tactics, and routines that help them get there. Now it's your journey, so it's time to learn what's going to get you there. Uh, what got you there? What got you, got you? Grant Williams is a legend in finance and media where he's carved out his niche over the last 35 years. On this episode, Grant distills down some of the most insightful wisdom he's learned along his journey. That journey includes co-founding the financial media company Real Vision, working in seven major financial centers from London to Sydney, building the kind of network that many others can only dream about, and creating the publication Things That Make You Go, Hmm. This is a wide-ranging conversation about failure, memorable people who have changed his life, learning by being a fly on the wall, and so much more. For the high performers looking to improve their leadership abilities, listen up and get ready to discover the path to becoming a better version of yourself. Let's face it, the best leaders, they're always on the hunt for insights, wisdom, looking for ways to get better, ways to make other people better. They see the gap between who they are and who they could be. For three decades, thousands of the world's most elite leaders have turned to admired leadership for insights, for the behaviors and routines of true leadership excellence, how to make decisions, build relationships, how to motivate and inspire. Now, for the first time, these rare insights are available online. Admired Leadership has this incredible video platform that focuses on 10 areas that are critical for all leaders. In each video module, you'll learn the 10 specific behaviors of the very best leaders. I've had the pleasure of taking this course, and it is hands down the best course I've ever taken on leadership. If you're looking to better yourself or raise up the team or company you're working with, then you have to check out Admired Leadership. I'm also excited about the new Admired Leadership Field Notes email. This is a daily email from the front lines of leadership. It's free, and even better, when you sign up, you'll get a special 16-page guide to motivation and inspiration that will change the way you lead. So you need to ask yourself the question, are you ready to become an even better leader? If so, find out more at admiredleadership.com. This podcast is all about uncovering the lessons and wisdom high performers are using to better their life, and one of the most important elements of high performance is your sleep. That's why I'm thrilled to tell you about 8Sleep. 8Sleep is revolutionizing what a great night of sleep means. The Pod Pro by 8Sleep is the most advanced solution on the market. And what it does is the Pod Pro has dynamic cooling and heating with biometric tracking so you know the exact amount and quality of the sleep you're getting. It comes in the form of both a mattress or a cover you can put on your existing mattress. Get the pod and start sleeping as cool as 55 degrees for those people who like a nice chilly room or mattress and as hot as 110 degrees. I'm one of the fans of the cooler mattress, so this is perfect for me. The temperature of the Pod Pro will adjust each side of the bed based on your sleep stages, biometrics, and bedroom temperature, reacting intelligently to create the optimal sleeping environment for you. So what's the result of all this? Eight sleep users fall asleep 32% faster, reduce sleep interruptions by 40%, and get an overall more restful night of sleep. The Pod Pro by Eight Sleep is so popular as garnered the attention from CEOs, pro athletes, and overall high performers like yourself. Go to eightsleep.com forward slash Sean to check out the Pod Pro and save $150 at checkoff. That's eightsleep.com forward slash Sean. Grant, welcome to What Got You There. How are you doing today? Sean, I'm, I'm doing great. I'm thrilled to, thrilled to be a part of this. Thanks for inviting me. 
Absolutely. I'm, I'm thrilled for this because we're, we're really going to try to distill down your thinking, how and why you think, and then extract some of that wisdom that, that you've accumulated over the years. And, and I'm always intrigued about how people go through their trajectory and, and more importantly, some of the people that shape their trajectory. So I would love to know how your Uncle Harry was an influence for you early on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's it's so funny. You know, um, I've told the story a couple of times and it, it's 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 funny. You have these little stories in your life that are just little moments to you, and they and they and, and they can really change the trajectory of your life. And, and uh, Uncle Harry wasn't even a real uncle. He was a he was a friend, a colleague of my father's, who um, who used to come around for dinner with my parents. I was I was a little kid. I was seven, eight years old, I guess. And uh, you know, I, I would always want to greet people when they came and say hello to all these uncles and aunties and stuff, and just kind of you know, I guess show off in front of them and just kind of talk to them. And uh, before getting ushered upstairs to bed, when when you know the, the drinks started getting poured and dinner started getting served, but uh, but uh, you know Uncle Harry was was the guy who would always sit and spend time with. Me. He would always have a joke for me, and he would always show me a card trick. And he he had this uh, he would do this thing where he would he could line up um, a whole set of different sized brandy glasses, and he would pour just literally straight down the line, pour 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 pour. And you would tip all of them over, and the measure was perfect, right up to the rim when you were laying a brandy glass. And, and it's just little things like that that just, I was blown away by just how cool this guy was. And so I, I just wanted to be whatever Uncle Harry was. I had no idea what he was. He had this great house. He had like Space Invader machines and pinball machines and this little barn and stuff. And he was just like the coolest guy. So I wanted to be him. And so, um, you know, I, I, I was asking my dad, you know, what does Uncle Harry do? He's a, he's a something called a foreign exchange trader. I said, well, I, I want to be a foreign exchange trader. I had absolutely no idea what it was. And that really was, I mean, my dad was working for a, for a small merchant bank at the time. So he was in banking, but, you know, from an administrative perspective, really. And that really was my introduction to finance. I was like, right, I want to be a foreign exchange trader. I'm going to find out what it is. And, and so you know, I kind of found out what it is. I had no idea when I read about what it was. It didn't make any sense to me whatsoever. Um, and I told my dad, and, and I remember you know, going on a family holiday to Spain, and, and they had pesetas back then. And so I, I kind of got an introduction to pounds and pocket money and pesetas and stuff. But um, I, I, I just kind of knew I wanted to be in finance at that point. And, and I, I, I went for a job actually at 16. I, in the UK back then, you could leave school at 16 or 18. And I actually went for a job at the age of 16 with, um, with uh, the Union Banque d'Arabe Française in London, UBAF. And I somehow got to a second interview, which was like, bizarre to me. And I ended up not getting the job, so I went back to school. Um, and then during my, my holidays, when I was 17, 18, studying for, for what we have, uh, A-levels in the UK... My dad, who by that point had left banking and had set up a recruitment consultancy with, with a friend of his, would get me temporary jobs in my in my holidays to earn a bit of pocket money. And so I would I would work at I worked at Continental Illinois before that went bust. Uh, I worked in the mailroom there for for a kind of a summer, which was great. Um, and but eventually I ended up getting a job in the what was called the Eurobond Settlements Department at a merchant bank called Robert Fleming and Co which was, you know, a, a, say a small independent merchant bank, which was part of the Fleming family, Alexander Fleming, Penicillin, and Ian Fleming, James Bond. It was all part of the same family. So it's, it's kind of a cool place to be. And I, and I just, I just love the people I work with. Um, I, I, I was literally checking telexes in the morning and making sure that things matched up and what have you. But, but behind a partition wall was the trading desk. And at the time, it was the Japanese... Uh, equity warrants and convertibles trading disc. And this was the mid-80s when Japan was a really hot market. 
And so, you know, spending a month the other side of that wall and, and taking every opportunity I could to go into the dealing room, you know, to pick up trade tickets or do whatever I could to just be around it and soak it in and listen to it all. And on my last day, I was going to go back to take my exams before I went to uni. And the guy that ran the, the back office said to me, look, um, you know, we've loved having you here. And if, if you want a job when you've done your exams, there's one here for you. And so, um, you know, I, 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 I kind of went away and thought about it and said to my dad, you know, it's either uni or do I take this job? And he said, well, if you go to uni, what do you want to do when you come out? And I said, well, the job on the other side of that wall. And he said, well, and then, look, this was a very different time in the UK. You could, you could start work at 18 with no college degree back then. And, and it, it was actually the, the usual, it was the norm. The, the, the exception was university degrees because there were so few universities in the UK. And so it was, it was absolutely, so I did that. I took the job and, you know, within six months, I think I'd kind of inveigled my way into a, an assistance job in the trading room. And, and, uh, and, and then on, I, I kind of lived the dream that I'd wanted to, even though I didn't realise it was Japanese equity warrants that I wanted to trade instead of foreign exchange. It's so interesting and intriguing about that moment where you ended up going back to your father and he was saying, well, if that's what you want to do after, after uni, why don't you just do it now? Have there been other moments like that, we can call those fork in the road type moments for you throughout this journey? You know, it's, it's so funny, Sean, because um, you, I don't, I, I'm not sure that you recognize them at the time. I, I think sometimes you do, you have, you have big decisions to make, but oftentimes it, it's life comes at you fast and things happen to you. <clears throat> and and what, I've, what I've found over the years is, is it's, it's great to have a plan and it's great to have somewhere you want to be and a, and, a, and a career path you want to follow. But in the same way, it's very dangerous because I think if you get, if you get absolutely set on that, and and intent on following that course. You, of course, you can be blind to things that come along um, that could take you in a completely different direction. And you know, for me, it's really been things that have, have happened to me. You know, I I, um, I was uh, I was working. Uh, you know, I'd kind of been in various countries all over the world, and and with my with my trading jobs. So I, you know, I was in I was in, living in Tokyo when the when the dot com bubble burst, when the uh, sorry Japanese equity and real estate bubble burst, and again was really too young to understand really what was going on. I, I had this sense that this just doesn't feel right, but I had no real grounding in history to understand the context of it. Um, and so you know that kind of happened to me rather than me navigating my way through it. But I was surrounded by people far more experienced. I mean, and, and that was one I think one of the advantages for me of starting so young was I was always the youngest guy on the, on the trading desk, whether it was in London, whether it was in Japan, whether when I get to New York. And so I, I was very much kind of, I wasn't expected to know what was going on. I, that people were very gracious in terms of helping me understand and helping me learn and, and, and taking care of me through, you know, the 87 crash was my first real um, wake up moment. And, 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 you know, I remember that so clearly because I, I was like a deer in headlights. I mean, I just, I had no idea what was going on. How this, how could this happen? And I'm watching the guys around me, um, you know, guys who were, who were actually not that much older than me, but, but seemed so much more experienced than me. And I, and I just watched how they, cause they all must've been feeling the same as me, but they just did what they needed to do. You know, it's like, yeah, we can sit here all day and go, well, how the hell can the Dow be down 22%? And how can Japan be down 20%? And how can all these things happen? They just said, they are. These things have happened. Now what do we do? And that was, I guess that was my first real lesson, is that the, the, the time you spend 
thinking about how the hell did this happen is just wasted time. There's a time to do that, but it's after the event. It's after you've dealt with the immediate situation that that event presents you with. Um, so, you know, that, that was a definitely a big moment for me. And I, and I think having that so early in my career, as they happened to me rather than me experiencing it, it happened to me. Um, I, I, I definitely think that's coloured my, my mindset throughout my career and it's made me understand um, what can happen. You know, it made me understand what risk really looks like. And it's definitely um, tempered my animal spirits over the years and, and I'm definitely not someone that goes all in and piles into things and follows trends and chases bubbles. Uh, even though I, I'm much better now at recognising them for what they are, I still have a real problem because I know you hang on one minute too long and you can be wiped out. So <clears throat> I'm much more comfortable letting something run up 15 20% and, and getting some momentum behind it, then getting in, and then once it's done something that starts to feel incredulous to me i'm happy to step away and leave the rest of it and that's that's i've missed out on so many blow-off tops in, in in my career and i haven't regretted it once because i've also pretty much ducked every single major event that's happened because i've been sitting on the sidelines or or short or something before that so you know again these these things happen and having having the the wherewithal to just sit back and analyse the now and not the what's happened was crucial. But I, th- I think the biggest turning point for me um, really was uh, something that happened to me in 2010. And this was, you know, I'd, 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 I'd left the business for a short time, moved to Singapore to help a friend set up a business. Uh, and unfortunately that happened right in the teeth of the fallout financial crisis and that, and that business didn't work out. And so I was kind of at a loose end and wondering what to do. And... Um, a, a dear, dear friend of mine, Steve Conway, um, who I've known for many, many years, was in Singapore and he was looking to start a business and, and God bless him, he kind of gave me a, a route back into the business for which I'll forever be grateful to. And because during that period of time I'd been writing things that make you go home um, just on my own and sending it out and, and kind of um, putting it out into the world just really as, a, as a, a kind of pressure valve for me with all the stuff that was going on, I, I kind of reached this crossroads and, and, and at that point in my life, that was, I think, uh, middle of 2013 and quite by chance, that was when Raoul Powell and I crossed paths um, and Raoul and I met for dinner in, in, um, in Spain where he lives with his, with his assistant Remy and, you know, there was something about me being freed up from that lawsuit and, and, I, and I went travelling just... I had to, a speech to give, but I thought I'd spend a week in Spain just kind of decompressing after this whole thing. And you know, because of that and the timing of that serendipitous meeting the three of us had, you know, that was where we had the conversation about launching Real Vision. And so you know, that happened to come along. And again, you come back to that point about having this path set in your head but, but not being open to these, these, these avenues. And the combination of, of being in the middle of writing things that make you go home, so having some exposure to the media world, even though it's kind of in my spare time, this idea that the three of us had about founding a, a, a media platform and that kind of sense of, okay, the court case is finished, that chapter of my life is over, it meant I was open to, to doing this. And so, you know, when we, when we kind of thought, let's give this a go, I was able to go to Steve and say, look, you know, I've, I've got this crazy idea with these, these friends of mine and I just, I've got this itch to go and explore it. Um, it feels like a road I want to take. Um, 
But to do that, I can't continue managing the fund I was managing for Steve at Volpez. Uh, I said, you know, there's no way I can, if I'm managing people's money, I can't be doing something else on the side. It, that needs to be my sole focus. I said, and, and look, you know, I, I owe you everything. Um, and so if it's inconvenient for you or whatever, then I, I, will, I will not take this road. I'll, I'll stick with you and, and, and stay here. And Steve, bless him, he's just, you know, he's just a wonderful guy. He said, look, I, I get it. Go, you go ahead, go do it. And if it doesn't work out, you, know, you can come back here anytime. Uh, so again, to have that support, knowing that you had a safety net, again, there, there, are, there are ways I'll never be able to thank Steve um, for what he's done for me. And so, and so that's where I went. I went off down that Real Vision road and that's kind of taken me, really, I, that's why you and I are talking today. Had I been doing, had I been working as a hedge fund manager uh, uh, for Steve Diggle, you, we, you and I wouldn't have heard of each other. And had I been working in an investment bank, you wouldn't have heard of me. And, and so that, you know, that, that story is the genesis of why I'm here today. And so I, so I apologise for taking so long to tell it. Um, and it's the first time I've ever told it. So it, 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 it'll, it'll be interesting to see the reaction it gets. But it's, it's by far the most impactful turning point of, of my life. No, I, I love it. Thank you for sharing that. I, I'm so intrigued by the number of serendipitous moments that, that got factored in there for you. Yeah. So, so like, I mean, with hindsight being able to look back, back on history there, I mean, how, how do you just think about serendipity and, and luck versus skill or, or just controlling in your own life now? Oh, I, I, think, I think skill without luck is, is really not much good to you, frankly. You can be the most skillful person in the world, but you do need luck. It's just, it's just that simple. And, and, you know, and I think my Real Vision journey has, has taught me that through finding people um, who are incredibly skillful at what they do, but no one's ever heard of them. And, and I, through sheer luck, would stumble across these people and, and, and be intrigued by what they do and intrigued by their writing or their thinking and, and ask them out the blue to do an interview and, and, and be lucky enough to be able to expose these brilliant people to an audience that would be able to benefit from them. So, you know, that luck for them, they were, they were always brilliant, but they didn't have an audience. And, and to be in a position to help people like that with that little bit of luck just you know, a PDF landing on my desk, or uh, you know, I found a, I found a, a note in, the, in a seat back pocket once on a plane, and I was just about to, I screwed it up and was about to throw it away, and I just saw the word gold in the in the corner where it was screwed up, and and so I opened it, uncreased it, read it, and was just blown away by it, and I kept it in my uh, in my uh, computer bag for about two years, and I would ask everybody, have you ever seen this? Because it had no branding on the top. Have you ever seen this? Do you know who this is? And it took me two years to find the guy who'd written it. And that guy was Luke Grumman, who, who writes something called Forest for the Trees. And again, you talk about serendipity. Uh, someone had told me that oh, it's, this, it's this trees guy. He lives, in, um, he lives in Connecticut somewhere. So I, I found out the website, recognised the logo, thought, wow, this is the guy. So I contacted him and said, hey, look, you know, I'm in New York. Any chance you're free this week for dinner? And he said, look, I, I can do dinner tonight, but but then I'm on a plane tomorrow morning. So we went and had dinner that night and literally we were talking at the end of the evening. I had a great time with Luke and he's just a tremendous guy. And I said to him, well, what time is your train to, to Connecticut? Because you know, I used to live in Connecticut, so I know the last train roughly goes from Grand Central. He said, what are you talking about? I said, well, don't you have to get back to Connecticut? He said, Connecticut? I live in Cleveland. And he happened to be in New York that day and was leaving the next day. So you talk about serendipity and, you know, we've become the best of friends since then. And, and again, I, I, he's another guy that, that I, I was so thrilled to get a chance to help him build a platform. And, 
you know, it, it's amazing what a tiny bit of assistance he needed from me to turn that into, you know, w- what he's turned it into now and, and the recognition he's getting, which is, which is beyond deserved. It's, it's, it's just fantastic. So it's, it is, it's those little moments that you don't expect and you don't recognise at the time for what they are. But to your point, Sean, you know, in hindsight, you look back and you go, wow, if, I, if I'd thrown that piece of paper away, for me, I would never have met someone who's become a dear friend. You know, beyond that, the business side of things great, but um, it, it's funny how the world works like that. That is funny. I mean, granted, if, you, if this didn't work out for you, it sounds like you could have been a real-world detective there on that two-year journey. That, that's just remarkable, the serendipity within that. Yeah. I'm curious, though, because you mentioned kind of finally that undiscovered talent, and it almost seems like you've got that, that fingertip feel for, for people that are, that are capable of unique things. What is it specifically that, that usually you tease out that you see in others? You know, Sean, I'll be honest, I've thought about this a lot and I would love to be able to tell you that I've got some great secret or, or there is something special about me, but there really isn't. And, I've, and I have spent a lot of time thinking about this. And I, 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 I distill it down to, um, I was listening to, to another podcast a while, uh, several years ago and, and they had this thing at the end, you know, what five words would you say to your younger self? And they were asking the guests, but of course you think about it yourself. And I realised that those five words for me would be listen more than you talk. And I think the more I thought about that, the more profound that became for, for me personally, and it, and it may not be for everybody else, but for, for me and for my journey, um, I, I've always listened. I've always tried to you know, be a fly on the wall in, in as many conversations as I can. If it's a one-on-one, obviously that's not possible, but anytime I'm in a group, I will try and listen. And if I'm brought into conversation, I will happily engage, but I, I just like to listen and, and learn from people because I, I, you know, I've, I've never learned anything listening to myself. I've said that many times, but I haven't, apart from you know, how dumb I can be. But, um, and so that, so that, that idea of, of listening um, is, I think, incredibly important. And, and asking people just simple questions, but being genuinely curious about the answers. And so what, what I found when I went into um, the Real Vision thing, you know, Raul and I had no media experience. We had no idea about interviewing as, as an art or a skill. Didn't even think it was. We just we thought of these as, as conversations the same as we'd had over dinners and drinks over the years. And that was, that was the genesis of the idea. It was like, you know, all those dinners we've been to over the years and just sat around talking finance – well, great, we've learned plenty from them, so why don't we just try and recreate that? It really was that. They weren't interviews. And I, and I found going in, and this was, again, pure accident on my part. I didn't think this through. I just kind of found it to be true, was that having a, a, a list of prepared questions for me just didn't work because what I found would happen is I'd sit there with my list of questions and I'd ask the first question, and the guy would start answering. But then two things would happen. He would see that I had a list of questions. And so he was looking at me thinking, okay, he's got other questions to get to. I don't want to talk too long. So you, you could see that they would kind of rein themselves in and, and maybe not be as expansive as they might be. And at the same time, I'm half listening to his answer and half thinking about how do I segue from this to my next question and not it'd be like a crunching gear change. And so I found there was a, a, a disconnect in that conversation. And, and, and I thought about it. I thought, well, I would never have a list of questions when I'm having dinner with someone. 
the conversation goes where the conversation goes and I'm going to dig into the stuff that I'm interested in. And, and I realise that when you're filming these things for other people, the things I'm interested in might not be what the audience is interested in. There might be people screaming at the, at, at, at the you know, iPod going, ask him this, ask him this. But, but I always figured that my role was to just be the guy there listening and picking up on the stuff that might be interesting and asking the questions that hopefully the audience would want to follow up on. And so that's kind of, to me, that's how it, it works. You know, I'm genuinely curious about the people I'm, I'm talking to. Um, I'm, I'm really interested in, in how they think like you, which is why you know, your podcast resonates so strongly with me that you, you and I think about this the same way. You, know, you tell me what to think and that's, that's really useful in the moment. But I can't use that again. That moment's gone. You know, you tell me what stock to buy today, great. But if I listen to your podcast a week after you've put that together, the information's useless to me. But you tell me how you came to the decision to buy that stock on that day, I don't care when I hear that. I can use that to help reinforce my own framework. And so all my conversations became about that. It was, you know, how do you do what you do and why do you do what you do and, and what experiences of brought you to those conclusions what did you what did you get wrong and, and you know I think talking to people about what they got wrong is is such an underrated approach because I think interviewers think well I don't want to make them look stupid but but the beauty of that is I found is is people who are successful are delighted to talk about what they got wrong because look it's obvious I it didn't derail me I'm here you know I'm here I've turned into the guy I am I've built the business I've built I've had the success I've built and so it's a it's a press it's a pressure valve for them to be able to say, oh man, there was this time I was such an idiot and I did this and I did. This. And I think we as listeners learn so much more from mistakes people made. Um, you know, and as a father, I always try and stop my kids making mistakes. But I realised as a father, there are there are things you can try and stop your kids doing, but they're going to do them anyway. And I, I when I thought about this, I distilled it down into into the fact that you know there are, there are things. You, you can be taught, but there are things you can't be taught, but you can learn. And that's what I'm interested in, is, is things that no one can teach you, but if you listen to them tell their stories, you can pull the threads out of that yourself. And, and that's where the real timeless wisdom is that you can apply to so many situations in your life rather than a moment in time. Yeah, I think that's why why your interviews and your writing resonate so much. It's evergreen. It's not that that guidance. It's going to live on. It's going to be that timeless wisdom that, unfortunately, we're just scar- starving for these days. And, and so I'm really intrigued how you mentioned about just the start of Real Vision, that no true media experience prior to that. And I'm wondering, go, going into things like that, is that the best approach? I mean, I know it's the approach that you've taken, but, <laughs> but you mentioned learning things along the way. In hindsight, would you try to dive deeper into media training prior to that? It, yeah, it's such a great question. And, and I think I think the answer is it's the best approach and the worst approach. And, and <laughs> you, you know, it's funny. We, we had this idea and we spent a weekend in Hong Kong, Raoul Remy and I, in a, in a, the same guy, Brian Poley, who, who I met that night, I got fired. He gave us his office in Hong Kong for a weekend and the three of us, I was in Singapore and they were in Spain, but they were going to Asia to meet clients. And we, we spent an entire weekend locked in this tiny room with a whiteboard. And we kind of mapped this thing out and at the end of it, we kind of stood back and um, kind of said, you know, it's not the dumbest idea anybody's ever had. Why don't we give it a go? And we did. And so we thought, right, we're going to do this. Now, the questions we hadn't asked at that point, had we asked them, would have 
completely derail us. We would have gone, okay, this is not, not doable. But we were just dumb enough to think, yeah, well, yeah this might work. And so we, we, we kind of moved forward. And, and we'd already gone far enough when we came to, to asking people, how much, so how, you know, how much does it cost to make a, you know, like half an hour of video content thing? We'd gone far enough when we asked that question to someone in the business that when they told us the price, and we just kind of went, oh, we're screwed. We are so screwed. <laughs> We'd kind of sunk so much time and energy into it that our response to that was, there must be a cheaper way to do this. We must be able to figure out a way to do this. And so, again, it's timing, right? Had we asked that question a month prior to that same guy and got the same answer, we probably would have given up and said, well, we just don't, we don't have the funds to, to do that. But there's a point where you kind of, that bloody mindedness kicks in. You're like, you know, we've come this far. And so we just coincidentally asked that question past that point of no return. And, and so we did figure out how to, how to do it cheaper and we did figure out how to, how to make it work. But, um, but no, we had, we had no media experience. And, and you know, I, I think that's part of the reason why it resonated with people. Um, and I look back at some of those early pieces we did and, and, and they were incredibly amateur. You know, they were very amateur. Um, but they were about the conversations. They were about the content. They, they, they weren't frills and special effects and, and God knows what. They, these were just two people in a room with minimal camera angles, but having interesting conversations to an audience that were interested in the substance of those conversations, not the graphics and the, and the flash and all that sort of stuff. So we found that group of people, to your point, who were starved of, of thoughtful, long-form content and because of um, my writing Things That Make a Home, you know, and, and my great friend John Malden had been distributing that to his audience. So there, was, there were enough people who were aware of me that we, we kind of had people that we could go to at the very beginning and say, hey, look, here's what we're going to do. And it might be a dumb idea, but if you kind of give it a go, we're pretty sure at the end of the year you won't want your money back. So you know, how about you give us a shot? And, you know, and enough people did that it got us off the ground. And, and um, every day, I mean, literally every day from that point on was a learning experience of some kind, whether it's about the technical side, whether it's about the business side, the audience, um, you know, social media, all of it. And, and, and it comes at you in waves. And, you know, I, I, I was focusing on the interviews. I was doing a lot of the interviews. And, you know, Raoul and Remy were amazing. I mean, the, 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 the amount of work they did on the business side and the and the lessons they were learning and, and the stuff they were doing um to to build the platform as a business was was truly remarkable um and you know so it, we the, we came together with a, a group of very different skill sets and it, and it you know it kind of worked which was which was fantastic for for all of us i'm always so intrigued when when you, you mentioned just the amount you're learning as you go here and for you what's going on behind the scenes like you've really skilled up and you've developed these unique talents over years. And I'm wondering, we, we see this finished product, these remarkable conversations, this, this excellent piece of writing. What's going on behind the scenes for you? Like, how are you really cultivating that learning? I don't know if you've seen the, the episode of The Simpsons where <clears throat> they cut to the inside of Homer's head and there's a monkey on a unicycle banging symbols <laughs> together. Driving around, right? it, feel, it feels like that to me. Yeah. I, you, know, you know, it's... it's, it's um, I, I really... I've learned an awful lot. Um, over, over these years, but but I've been lucky enough to have learned them through trial and error. You know, I've been fortunate that I haven't 
blown myself up at any point, which you know, is, is, a, is a moment away when you're an Englishman in the 70s with a sarcastic sense of humour. Um, but, I, you know, I think, I think the, the thing that I've, I've tried to do consistently, and again, it's not, I, I wish it was some kind of Machiavellian plan I had or some great strategy, and it really isn't. All, all of this stuff that I've, kind of these conclusions I've come to are from looking back rather than forward and having a plan and, and thinking about, okay, why has this worked? Why has that not worked? Um, and I think, I think the, the thing that I've tried to do consistently, whether it's my writing or whether it's in the, in the video conversations, is I've tried to create content that I would want to read or I would want to watch. Hmm. And, my, and so my, by making my audience me, I then have to trust that the audience that have, that have either found my work or... or come to Real Vision and want to watch one of my interviews, they trust me that they, they know what they're going to get. It, it's, it's, it's a similar thing, but it, but it is an exercise in trust. And for some people, it doesn't work. Some people will, will hate every word I've written. Some people will, as soon as they see me on an interview, will skip forward and look for the next one. And that's totally fine. And that's part of the reason why I think focusing on, on yourself and, and thinking, well, that way I know like-minded people are going to be as curious about this as I am is for me is certainly a better idea than trying to cater to a bigger audience. And, you know, that, that to me was, um, you know, when, when it came time for me to leave Real Vision, um, you know, it wasn't a big fight that some people have speculated there's some big fight going on. It, we really reached, I think, a natural point where, um, you know, Raoul had done a tremendous job in, in, in growing an audience and building a platform and, and my part in that had stayed on a much narrower path because the stuff I was interested in doing didn't really fit with trying to build a big audience. You know, I, I was creating a certain kind of content that I know resonated incredibly strongly with a certain group of people. And, you know, some of the stories I can tell you about the interactions I've had with people about those conversations are truly life-changing. Um, but, I, but I knew that there was an audience for that and it wasn't this gigantic audience that Real Vision was trying to build. And so you know, it, it reached really a natural point where it just felt like, you know, this is the time. This is the time that you're going to go off and you're going to continue to expand your audience and build a platform, build a media presence and I'm going to stick to doing what I do and, and, and try and find my audience and and that so that's kind of where the fork in the road came and 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 for me um you know i i i am much happier knowing that i'm i'm not trying to build a brand because it's just not who i am as a person i i honestly if i could do this stuff anonymously i would i really it, it's i don't seek out um attention i don't seek out uh, and and i've had so much grief over the years from good friends of mine um who berate me every time they see me give a, a presentation at a conference for example uh and i've got really good friends who who uh, have been at multiple conferences and they take me aside afterwards to go would it kill you to plug your newsletter just you know you've got an audience here would it kill them to just tell them what you do instead of the guy up there giving a speech and it's just something i've always i've always struggled with you know i i, I just i'm not a great salesman you know Raoul is one of the best salesmen i've ever i've ever met in my life but it's just not a skill set that i have i'm very uncomfortable doing it and so, you know, part of the reason that I ultimately took my work behind a paywall 
was that, <clears throat> excuse me, edit that out again, um, was that I, I wasn't looking to, to maximise my audience. I wasn't looking to generate eyeballs and, and, and build up something that, that people want to advertise on. I wanted to find my audience. I wanted to find the people for whom my work had value. And, and by definition, I figured, look, if this is valuable to you, you'll be happy to pay for it. I know I am. When I find content that costs money and it's valuable to me, I have no problem in, in paying for it. And so that was my decision was that, I, okay, I want my audience, the audience who understand what I'm doing, understand the motivations behind it, and, and it resonates with them. And, and that, again, you know, came from... By the way, Sean, I've never talked this much in my entire life. You know, I, I, I can't believe you've got me doing this. In, in the same conversation, I'm talking about listen more than you talk, and here I am droning on for... No, no, for that's the point. God knows how long. You know, so, so let me tell you one of these stories that I was alluding to a minute ago, because it's... Um, I, and I'm going to try and get through this without tears of my own, because it, it was such an incredibly powerful moment. Um, I, I did an interview back in January 2018 with a guy called Tony Deeden. And Tony is someone who'd been kind of um, a a pen pal almost for a number of years after we were introduced by mutual friends. And, you know, we'd met once or maybe twice and I'd been badgering him to do an interview with me because I was was just so taken by this man and everything he stands for, everything he is, the way he thinks, the way he carries himself. And he'd turned me down for, for three years four years maybe and I eventually through again another serendipitous moment where I ended up at dinner with him he turned out to be a mutual friend of my dear dear friend Simon and Wendy Mikhailovich in New York and we ended up having dinner I couldn't believe that they knew him and I hadn't realized that and joined those dots three years prior and I eventually persuaded Tony to do this interview and so I I flew to Switzerland he lives in Zurich and we spent a day in a hotel in in the Alps talking just talking. And I'd, I'd had a dinner with Tony, so that dinner where I met him with Simon and Wendy, and, and I'd, I'd spent three hours at that dinner and I would have said five words. And I was just listening to Tony talk to Simon and Simon talk to Tony and, and you know, two profound thinkers. And it was just such a remarkable conversation. So Tony and I spent these, this day talking. And at the end of it, I... I knew at the end of that filming that we had something very special, that we, that conversation was special because I, coming away from it, I knew how I felt about it and how many points in that conversation had really struck me on a very, very deep level. And so we, my cameraman Franz and I left, we filmed all these beautiful shots of the Alps and Franz is an absolute genius with a camera, a real talent in, in producing these beautiful conversations we we came back to the Cayman Islands and we set about editing this thing and we had close to four hours of footage and we cut out you know the 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 stuff where it it wasn't meant to be on camera you know bits here and there and we cut out the ums and ahs and we ended up with you know two hours and 45 minutes of of just great footage and I got into a, a, a big fight with with Raoul and the other guys about this and I was saying look you know they said this needs to be an hour long I said, there's absolutely no way this can be an hour long. I said, there's no way. And I cut it down to two and a half hours. And, and we got to the point where I was like, I said, I will die on this hill. I cannot cut another minute from this. Trust me, every single second of this is gold and people are going to 
want more, not less of it. And uh, somehow uh, I won that fight. I was outnumbered, but I won that fight. And, and so we put this, this piece up. And, and I genuinely, when we, when we put it up, I was, I was so nervous about this, this piece. As good as I knew it was, I was so nervous for, for a couple of reasons. One, because it was so long. And it's daunting when you, when you, when you look at a video and it says, you know, two hours, 30 minutes, or 2.25, I think it was. That's a commitment that you're making. And many people won't make that commitment today because everyone wants sound bites and snackable content and this kind of stuff. And so I was very nervous that people wouldn't, they'd be frightened by it. And then I was nervous about the people who were looking for trade ideas and who would listen to Tony and go, who's this old fool? There's not one trade idea. You know, what am I supposed to do with the S&P? Because that wasn't what it was about. So I, I just didn't want Tony having spent three years persuading him to do this, having taken up so much of his time, and him at the end of it going, oh, you know, I'm not happy with that. I think it could have been so much better. And me saying, this was great, I promise you. I just didn't want him to be faced with people criticising all of them. So we air this thing, and I'm, you know, I'm kind of looking at the comments through, through my hands. And slowly but surely the comments started to come in just about how much people appreciate this and, you know, why have I never heard of this guy before and who the hell is he and... And so it, so it was great. I breathed a sigh of relief and, I, you know, I, and I, would, I would get emails from people about it and I would forward those on to Tony and say, look, just so you know, this is an email I got today about someone thanking you for sharing this. And, and Tony begrudgingly conceded that it, it, it felt good to be helping people you'd never met. That, that was as far as he would go into acknowledging that, you know, how, how important this conversation was. And then a year later, a year later, I, I was in New York and, and Real Vision held a, a, a conference and um, I was the last speaker that day. And normally I, I'm, I, I do these presentations and I'm, I'm very particular about my presentations and, and the screen is constant motion and it's there for a reason so that me being self-conscious as I am talking in public, there are, no one's looking at me. There's, as long as there's stuff happening on the screen, I know they're going to be forced to look at the screen. So I make these very intricate presentations that allow me to just, read my presentation out while all the stuff's going on over here but because I've been running around I didn't have a chance to build one of these for this for this real vision presentation so I was incredibly nervous about about what to do um what to do for this this presentation so what, what I did was I took clips from my videos this this in conversation series Tony was the uh, the second one and I'd done 12 of them throughout that year and so I took little clips and I played them, and then I just talked about the lessons I'd learned from those clips and why I felt that clip was important and meaningful to me. So I went through, and the very last clip was a, a clip from Tony's interview where he talked about an investment he'd made in a date farm. And he'd been to this farm to, to meet the, the family who ran this business. And the CEO was in his late 40s, maybe early 50s, it was a family business. We're showing Tony around this property and they came to this field with freshly planted date trees in it. And Tony said, oh, I don't know anything about dates. So I asked the guy, I said, you know, how long until those trees bear fruit? And um, the guy said, oh, it'll be, it'll be 20 years before they bear fruit, but it, closer to 40 before we can actually sell it, before it's good enough and, and rich enough for us to sell under the family brand. And Tony said, I, I asked this guy, I said, well, you know, why, why are you planting trees that you know, you're going to be 85 by the time you can sell the fruit on them. And the guy kind of gestured to the, to the next field and said, well, that field was planted by my father and the field behind that by his father and the field behind that by his father. And I, I'm just here to carry on 
the family legacy. And that was how the story ended. I stopped the video and I said, okay, I've done all the hard work for you so far. This one's up to you. You can figure out what you take from this. Thanks very much. Good night. And that, that was the end of my presentation. So I went to the bar and I'm standing at the bar chatting with a couple of guys. And this is in New York. And I've got my back to the bar and I've got one guy on either side of me. And we're just talking about nothing in particular, you know, the Yankees or weather or whatever it may be. And another guy who's at the conference walks towards me and he's kind of on the fringe of this conversation and he's obviously looking for a, 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 an avenue to, to join. So I just said, look, come, come join us, come join us. So he joins the conversation and we're just chit-chatting and then there's a pause. And as soon as there's a pause, he says to me, he says, I can't believe that you picked that story of Tony Deedon's about, about the date farm. I said, oh yeah, I, said, I, I, I love that story. It's one of my favourite stories. He said, well, that story changed mine and my wife's life. And so I'm, I said, what do you mean? So he starts telling the story. And he said, you know, we, we were working in Silicon Valley, a couple of VCs, and we're earning more money than we could ever spend. And he said about five years ago, I think it was, you know, we'd bought an interest in a furniture factory in North Carolina. We both love furniture, and it was just a hobby. We just wanted to have a fun pastime and stuff to do. So we watched that interview, my wife and I, and we, we cracked open a bottle of wine, and we're sitting drinking the wine and talking about what we'd heard. And we both landed on that story. He said, and, and so right there, over that bottle of wine, after that story, we both decided that we were going to quit our jobs, we were going to buy the rest of this business, and we were going to build something that we could leave to our kids, that they could then take on as a family business. And see, it's happening again every time I tell this story. And as he's telling me this story, there are tears running down his cheeks. And... There is nothing in this world more frightening for an Englishman than emotion in public. We do not like being confronted with it. We do not like showing it. And so I'm just, I'm, I'm just frozen. And so I just kind of give him a big hug. And at this point, I'm now crying. And the two guys next to me who have both seen the thing, they pile on. And there's, there's four grown men in a bar in New York crying, I mean, in tears. In a, in a crowded bar with all these people looking at us going, who did the Yankees sign? Like, what the hell's happened here? And, and it was the power of that story. Um, and, you know, I've, I've, I've had over the years since I published that conversation, I've had people stop me in airports, stop me at conferences, stop me in the street, who want to talk about that conversation. And not the same moment. Different moments in that conversation have different resonances for different people. And, you know, that's what made me realise that there are, there are people out there who, to your point earlier, are starved of this kind of conversation. And it's not a big audience. It's not an awful lot of people. Most people do want to be told what to buy and when to buy it and when to sell it and how to make money and to do it quickly. But I think for the other people, the, the, the short-term people are very well served. There's plenty of people that will tell you what to buy and when to buy it and when to sell it. That's, that's very easy. But to try and do something that that small audience will appreciate and to your earlier point about something being timeless, you know, that, that interview, I have a handful of people who email me every month. They watch it every month as a reminder and they email me every month and say, just watch it again, you know, I've forgotten this part or I've picked up on that part. And so that, for me, is what I am so energised to do is to try and have these conversations that won't resonate with everybody but the people that they do resonate with they're incredibly powerful 
they're, they're meaningful and they have a timelessness about them that they can go back to the well over and over again and, and hopefully take what to me you know, is wisdom. There's knowledge, but there's also wisdom. And, and, and that wisdom, those, those lessons that you can, as I said, you, know, you, you can learn but not be taught are priceless, I think. That interview you had with Tony Deaton was just fascinating to me. I remember it was a Saturday morning the first time I came across it. I did the transcript first. I've gone through that a dozen times. And the thing I love most about that, when we talk about evergreen-type content, as, as I develop in my own journey, I go back and revisit, and it's, ah, oh, I, I hadn't even considered what he was saying there in yeah. that light. And, and so it's one of those things you can keep going back to. He has this moment in it when he's talking about being somewhat lost, and he's like, it's like when you have a map. Um, but you don't know where you are, so the map does you no good. And I feel like a lot of the things you're talking about, I, I guess I'm wondering, how do you get your footing? Where even when you were talking about moving on from um, from Real Vision, how, how, do you, how do you get your own footing there where you can be comfortable enough and saying, you know what, this is me, this is my journey? Uh, again, it's a great question, Sean, and, and, and you know, things that I haven't really thought about, but, but I think when you ask that question, the thing that, leaps immediately into my mind and I've, and I've learned to trust that is is this idea of authenticity is this idea that whatever you're doing needs to be authentic i think if you are if you're pursuing these goals out of genuine curiosity if you are trying to find these people to talk to because you you genuinely want to learn i think if you know that there are authentic reasons for this. I think you can trust yourself to then to then follow where where those those wishes take you. I think if you are if things are a means to an end, I, I, I don't know, but I think for me, I wouldn't be able to trust myself as much if if my if my end was to build a billion dollar business, for example, then I don't know that I would trust myself to make these decisions on the fly because do they match my goal? Do they match my goal of building a billion-dollar business? And you might think, no, they don't in the moment, but in hindsight, yes, they would have done, but I don't know. Whereas for me, I'm, I'm really building a business as an afterthought. You know, I've, I've been very, very fortunate, um, and believe me, I understand exactly how fortunate I am that by pursuing this this passion of mine to to communicate with people, to write and, and to put stuff out there that I know every time I publish a written piece, I get so much more back in terms of people either adding to what I've written about or challenging my view. It, it's invaluable. So this passion I've had to try and learn and, and, and become smarter and become better at what I do, that passion has taken me down a path that has accidentally turned into a business. And it really is accidentally. I had no designs to do anything I'm doing now at any point. It's, it's happened along the way. And so I'm, I'm incredibly fortunate that, that not just the work I do, but, the, but the, I think the way I do it resonates with that small group of people. And the fact that it resonates with them is great for me. And the fact that I don't have a desire to build an enormous audience works for them. So we've kind of, you know, we've, we've kind of found each other and, and, it, and it works for everybody involved. And so, um, you know, I, I, 
I, I, I just think this, this idea of authenticity and, and doing something for reasons that aren't driven by either personal success or financial gain, it's easy to say, but, but I've found them to be true. I've found that if you, if you do that, then recognition, whether you want it or not, will come. Um, and then it becomes a question of, okay, how do I kind of minimise that recognition? How do I avoid that becoming something bigger than I'm comfortable with? And, you know, if, if the financial gain isn't your ultimate motive, the, the creation of, of, of worthwhile and valuable content is, if you create something of value to people, no matter how big that audience is, I think people are recognize it and and they value it and therefore you can build a business out of it now if you if you get to a point where you think okay i can now take this business and build a media empire i think you lose the authenticity in that and you lose you lose the integrity of it that it's something that is a passion project that you just happen to accidentally turn into a business i'm not sure how much sense that makes in my head it sounds great but i know as it comes out of my mouth it's there's a disconnect somewhere I think it sounds a little better than you think. Uh, it makes me think of that line, escape competition through authenticity. No one can beat you at being you. Um, yeah. So, so that does speak so deeply. Uh, I, I'm wondering then, because as you're doing things through your authentic voice and your authentic self, I guess I'm just wondering how you've been able to delay that gratification and, and be comfortable with the path you're on, even when there aren't those immediate rewards. I, well, to, to me, actually, that that's been the easiest part of it. You know, I, I've 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 never put out a piece, written or or audio or video that I wasn't happy with. I, I would I would never if I wasn't happy with something, I would rather put nothing out than just think, oh, I've got a deadline to meet and put something out. So I've 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 never had to do that, and I've also been fortunate in that the as I said, the feedback I get from people on these pieces, and you know, even the negative stuff, I, I've I'm. I'm so proud of the fact that I think the audience that that has kind of found me and does value my work understand <coughs> excuse me understands me as a person and so the criticism I get is constructive I don't get the, the you know the stuff I see on Twitter that just turns my stomach with just this ad hominem stuff you know so and so is an idiot because he doesn't think the same as me and you know, that stuff I, I just I, it 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 physically makes me feel ill I just I can't stand it but someone who will email me about and I've got guys who email me after every piece I write and will are are equally fulsome in their praise and their criticism and it's fantastic because it's respectful it's not you're an idiot you wrote this you don't know what you're talking about it's look I know you wrote this but you should read this because it actually debunks what you wrote and 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 so I think by cultivating that that kind of two-way um, atmosphere of respectful communication. I don't think there is any delayed gratification. I, I think when I when I, I I'm always nervous whenever I publish anything. Um, there's always that moment where you hope, not that everyone says nice things about it, but I just I hope people value this. I hope I'm continuing to provide my part of the bargain. If you're paying for my letter or paying for my podcast. My nerves are, I want you to feel like this was worth your time, more importantly than the money. Was this worth an hour of your day when there are so many things competing for that hour? Um, 
And so, you know, the, the delayed gratification is, in, in terms of money, I, I, I just don't worry about that. It's not, that's not gratification. That's, that's a byproduct of doing the best work you can and, and constantly holding yourself up to a high standard to put something out that, that if I were listening to, I would embrace and, and find valuable. I just love the foundation that, that you're built on, the values there that, that you've been able to instill. And, and one of the pieces you bring up there that I just think is so important and one of the things I most admire is the amount of diversity of thought you bring into the world and then you're even willing to, to expose yourself to that. Uh, I, I'm just wondering, is that something that, that you've cultivated over time or, or was that just something you were born with, being able to, to look objectively? You, you know, I, th- I think, I think uh, look, objectivity for, for me, particularly today, is has become unfortunately an offshoot of just good manners <laughs> you know I, I think i think this this idea of a well-mannered disagreement is tragically going the way of the dodo and and it upsets me greatly and this is really one of the main reasons why my forays into the world of cryptocurrencies are so few and far between because i just the lack of civility that i find in that world just makes me not want to engage. You know, and I, I have plenty of friends who are very knowledgeable about the space and I will talk to them privately to help understand it. But I realised that putting something out there publicly, um, and I did, you know, I, I did, a, I did, I think I've done two pieces. I did one podcast about Bitcoin when I, when I had uh, Mike Green, who's become a dear friend. And again, another uh, guy who was introduced to me by a friend who I'd never heard of and no one else had ever heard of. And, and after my first hour talking with Mike, my jaw was on the floor at just how smart this guy was. And he set about proving me wrong about how smart he was in a good way every day since. Um, and Nick Carter, who's a, you know, a, a fine young man and a, and, a, and a great proponent and advocate of Bitcoin and very respectful and a, and a polite and a great debater. And I had a, a debate with those two guys uh, on my podcast about Bitcoin and, and it, it was fantastic. It was respectful. They kind of pushed back at each other, but you know, in what I felt was a very respectful way. And it was useful. It was a useful back and forward. And you know, once the podcast goes out there, I could tell from the comments on it, from the tweets and stuff, who were audience who were familiar with me and who were the Bitcoin crowd. And it's such a shame because everyone had already picked a side. The Bitcoin crowd said, ah, oh, Mike, you got schooled by Nick. And the non-Bitcoin crowd got, ah, oh, Nick, you got schooled by Mike. And so you lose any value from listening to the other side. So, so for me, that objectivity, it, it's never been more important than it is now because you, 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 you accidentally find yourself in these echo chambers. So you know, your, your social media feed will, will feed you more of what you agree with. And I, I just think that the, the more people you listen to and the more ideas you can embrace, and, and, you know, and in the moment... When you're in a conversation, people talk about, well, why didn't you push back when this guy brings that point up? And oftentimes in the moment, it's a new point to you. And so it's not something you should instinctively push back against. I want to digest it. And it, and it might be that I'll move on, but I might email that guy the next day and say, hey, listen, you know that thing you said, but I, I don't want to be in the knee-jerk reaction business and I don't want conflict for the sake of stirring up media attention oh, oh you, there was a great fight between peter schiff and so-and-so on that podcast i i, I just have no interest in that and so I, I i i'm 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 genuinely curious 
and I'm I've joked about this many times but but you know people think it's 100% joke it's not it's 50% joke I say in every conversation I've had it through all my interviewing I'm the dumbest guy in the conversation and I acknowledge that and so I just want to learn I want to hear what the other people have to say I want to challenge it but respectfully if if I have a different view um and I'm not going to label the point to to score any kind of win you know if someone is in the deflation camp and I'm in the inflation camp I'm going to say well you know what about this but I'm not then going to hammer them until they say all right all right uh, uncle uh, inflation it is because what's the point um I'm much more interested in speaking to guys who have different views to me and who can help me explain why I'm wrong because that's I think the trap that we all fall into is is believing that we're infallible and it's it's so so far from the truth particularly in my case is to be laughable Grant, that that is some absolute timeless wisdom there uh i know we're going to wrap up here in a minute you mentioned just the voracious nature of you learning how much you've learned your conversation with tony deed and a lot of your conversations have been those things that woo, they just absolutely stuck with me i'm wondering for you what are some of those things that have just stuck with you over the years Oh, look, you know, I, I, I've, I've been so fortunate in, in the people that I've spoken to. And, and more importantly, I think how, how open they've been with me and how generous they've been, not just with their time, because, you know, these, these interviews take a long time to, to film. It's not just, hey, come in, sit in the chair and you're gone in an hour. You know, we can, we can eat up an entire day of someone's time. You know, spending a day with Felix Zulaf, who's been a hero of mine for many, many years, and we, you know, we've been pen pals for a number of years but to spend a day with Felix um and you know his his warmth and his generosity taking me to his home and, and sharing so much of his thought process with me was something I'll never forget um and you know someone like uh, Leon Cooperman who gets an incredibly hard time from people he's a polarizing figure and he was he was described by the mutual friend that introduced us as quote unquote a gruff billionaire um he was anything but, you know, he was reflective and thoughtful and open um, and honest about stuff. And, you know, we finished the, the conversation and then we just sat for an hour eating pizza and talking about the world. And, and so, you know, these people that, that you, you, you come into contact with and, and who give you their time. But then I, I spent a time interviewing a great friend of mine called David Hay, who's out in Bellevue, Washington. David's a, a, a money manager for a firm called Evergreen Gavcal. And he's been a friend for many, many years. And David is one of the most thoughtful, humble, principled people you'll ever meet in your life. And, and not enough people know who David is. And he helped me out. I was supposed to film an interview with, with a guy um, who at the last minute backed out. And so I called David and said, look, I want to come and have a conversation with you that you and I have had in private many, many times. Um, but I would like I'm in a bind. I need I need to film an interview next week. Is there any chance you'd do this for me? And he, you know, did it as a favour. And the conversation was all about the relationship between a money manager and their and their clients. And I again, this was a conversation I David and I have spoken about it a lot over the years because it's it's arguably the most important relationship in finance. But understanding it um and how it's changed over the years is 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 so important and it's become corrupted by this this idea that gathering assets is the most important thing and so you, know, you compromise that relationship because you you'll say anything you need to say to get someone to invest with your firm because you want to gather those assets so david i went out to bellevue and i sat with david and poor guy he had the he had the worst cold he had this sore throat he could barely understand what he was saying 
And we spent the entire day having this conversation. Um, and to be able to put that out into the world, uh, you know, a, a deeply private conversation with a dear, dear friend, and to be able to let thousands of people sit on that boat with us and sit on that deck with us and just listen to a, a man of enormous principle and integrity doing a job that the audience are no doubt familiar with, but explaining how he manages that relationship and, and how you know, he'd rather lose clients than money. And he's, he's not in the asset gathering business. But, but it's those conversations that I think people don't get a chance to hear because of what we spoke about earlier. Everybody wants a stock tip. Everybody wants to know where the S&P is going to close on the end, at the end of December. And I, and I, I recorded a conversation with Lizanne Saunders of, of Schwab recently, who is just a, a, a remarkable woman. And, and a wonderful, wonderful person. She's so warm and so giving and so open and so smart. And she said the same thing. She said, look, I, I, I'm not in the business of giving forecasts because why would I tell you? I don't even know if December 31st is a business day. So why am I going to tell you where the S&P is going to close that day? So I, I, just, I just think in, in trying to have these conversations about things that are interesting and are intriguing and are useful to try and understand better, there's an authenticity and an integrity to that because who doesn't want to understand things better? Who doesn't want to ask people interesting questions about stuff they care about? So I, I'm, just, I'm just fortunate that people um, are, are, as I said, gracious with their time and, and will allow me to come into their homes and ask them those questions. I know you're a big fan of history. If there was someone back in history that you could spend one of those days on a boat with just having a conversation like this, who would that be? Oh, boy. I'm tempted to say England managers when they were choosing their soccer team sheets for some of these World Cups, but um, you know it's a, it's a great question, and there's, there's so there's so many of them. I mean, there's so many of them. Uh, um, you know, I, I'd love to sit down with um, Rudy von Havenstein, both both the real one and his Twitter namesake, to 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 get in the mindset of of you know the whole Weimar hyperinflation thing. I'd love to sit and talk to Winston Churchill about perseverance and about you know, how he galvanised an entire nation to, into something that was e- extraordinary. I'd like to sit and talk to Keynes and really understand, you know, what it was that he really meant, you know, because and, and, his, his work's been taken and, and like everything said, there are so many different reads on it. But, you know, go back to Socrates and Plato and Robert Frost. I mean, there are so many people from all different walks whose words have resonated with me so strongly over the years that you know to 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 boil it down to one person in history I'd like to spend with. I, I know I'd be sitting at that table, spending the first half an hour thinking, Marcus Aurelius. I knew I should have thought of that guy. What the hell am I doing here with Plato? So I, you know, I think I think the beauty of it is, of course, we can spend time with these people, and and their words are there, and and that's why for me reading history is is just so beneficial. To say nothing of enjoyable, understanding what what happened before but but you you learn lessons without even realizing you know I, I always get asked for book recommendations and I, and I and I bore people to death with the book recommendations I give them because I keep banging on about the same ones and and when our the times we're living in change I'm sure I won't recommend the lords of finance to people but I have a great friend of mine uh, Michael Schneider down in Australia who's a, a, again a brilliantly smart investor and he emailed the other day and I've been recommending him to read Laws of Finance for at least a decade, at least a decade. And he's finally reading it. And he sent me this long email saying, 
why the hell didn't I read this book when you first told me? And he, and he wrote, broke down all the things that he'd learned from it and all the parallels to today. And so, I, you know, I, I think there are things that are worth reading that you, you can never tell people too many times. And, and, and I'm a great believer that books tend to find you at the right time when they're going to mean the most to you. And so kind of putting these titles out there and, and at some point someone's going to go, no, this is what that grey-haired English fool said I should read. Ten years ago, maybe I'll pick it up. And it's the right time. So I, I just, you know, there's so much, everything you need to know is in history. And so I, I just think you should read as much of it as you can. Grant, that, that curious nature of yours is coming out. It's so apparent. And, and I just need to thank you. We, we talk about some of those things that just leave lasting impact multiple of your conversations your writing truly has done that for me uh, i'm going to link up some of my favorites in the show notes here where else can the listeners stay connected with you i mean this is a conversation i, I could have going on for hours but we want to expose people more to what you're doing where, where should we direct them right, you know, it's very simple there's, there's two things uh, i'm on twitter uh, at ttmygh which is the acronym for things that make you go home if you can't remember um and my website grant-williams.com has got basically all my work on there everything's on in one place now finally i've i've, I've finally done that the, the beginning of this year after many years of wishing i'd got my finger out and, and do it it's finally done so grant-williams.com well grant williams i can't thank you enough for joining us on what got you there sean you've made me talk more than any human being in history for which i i'm not sure how i feel about that i'll have to reflect on that and come back to you but it's been it's been a thrill for me thank you so much for having me and being so patient with me you guys made it to the end of another episode of What Got You There. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I really do appreciate you taking the time to listen all the way through. If you found value in this, the best way you can support the show is giving us a review, rating it, sharing it with your friends, and also sharing on social. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Looking forward to you guys listening to another episode.